0: Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence
1: of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in.
0: Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the co-founder of Osmosis Knowledge Diffusion, Shiv Gaglani. Medicine has long been known to be one of the most difficult fields to study. You hear reports about everything from countless sleepless nights spent over textbooks to restlessness to even some students breaking down from the sheer amount of stress. Shiv wanted to become a doctor ever since the first day his father, a physician, took them to the local hospital. But when he started his course at Johns Hopkins, he quickly wondered if there was a better way. Thanks to serendipity, bringing him and Ryan Haynes together, the two would begin working on what would become osmosis. Osmosis touts itself as the Netflix of medicine, offering clearly digestible lessons on topics from every realm of medicine. Osmosis has recently been ranked on the Inc. 5000 and continues in its mission to empower clinicians and students through a better mode of education. Osmosis knowledge diffusion is growing like crazy. So Shiv, let's get to it, buddy. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me Andrew. Yes, sir. So it's pretty self-explanatory in terms of the problem that you saw, but take us into your experience of it. How did this emerge for you?
1: Yeah, so my co-founder and I met as anatomy partners at Johns Hopkins Medical School, and he had a PhD in neuroscience coming into medical school, uh, and I had a background in education. I had previously written two books on education for mostly high school students. And so we we were uh, basically, forgetting things almost as quickly as we were learning them and that was a pretty consistent thing among our classmates so we wanted to just hack around uh, and start experimenting with a platform very similar to like a learning management system like like canvas or blackboard meets a quizlet which is a user-generated content flashcard uh tool and we didn't intend for this to become a company we just started creating something that our classmates could use and we could use to crowdsource questions, test ourselves using these, you know, proven evidence-based learning techniques. And then when we released it uh, to our classmates at Hopkins, only 120 students, um, within a month, we started hearing from their friends at other medical schools who wanted to use it. And so we started thinking, maybe we should dedicate our summer to this. Uh, so we then dedicated a the summer, did research with it, and then uh, wound up scaling it out to a couple thousand students And then from there, decided to actually take the jump, take take a year off after our second year of med school and start working on
0: it um, uh, more more earnestly. Wow. Okay. so how the hell did you find the time to do that in the midst of having to keep up with your studies initially, like with that first test group? When you guys are, are putting this platform together, how in the world did you even find the time or the energy to do that? Well, I think
1: uh, it's natural for people like, so instead of brute force studying every day, we said, okay, what if we took a step back and dedicated some hours every day to instead building a platform that then, you know, it'll, it'll take us away from our studies for a period of time, but then make it far more efficient, right? It's like almost like the caveman who built a tool, right? And re- like, uh, and we're able to cut down wood easier to make fires, you take some time you aren't cutting wood every day and manually but you you find a way to like build a tool and then you can use a tool so everything up until after that point is more efficient so that's what that's how we viewed it and uh, you know it wasn't like a completely left field idea if we were successful with osmosis we'd be more successful in our in, in school which we found to be true um so and then the other part of it is your first year at hopkins med is pass fail so you know, if you're relatively smart and can memorize things pretty quickly, you know, it's not too hard to pass. Um, uh, whereas I think if it was like, you know, graded and the grades mattered a lot, then we probably would have had less time to, uh, to to build this platform.
0: Wow. It reminds me of the I think it's a well-known parable. Maybe maybe not. But the it's like the parable, of the two Egyptian brothers that were tasked to build the pyramids. Have you ever heard of that before? I haven't. No. Tell me about it. So uh, it's a long story, but the gist is able to be digested pretty quickly. These two brothers are both tasked to build the pyramids, and it's a race. Whoever wins and gets the pyramids completed gets like a lifetime of wealth, right? And so the first brother just uses brute force. He puts his head to the grindstone and starts cutting stones, moving them by hand, and is doing everything he can. It's taking forever. As he looks over, his younger brother hasn't even started yet. After a year, hasn't started. After two years, hasn't started. And he's wondering, what is he doing? And he's tinkering with machines he's, he's he's tinkering with building leverage systems right and the story goes on and on over years what's happening but you know the gist of the story basically uh starting late his brother finally has a machine that he's built to be able to pick up the, the you know to cut and to pick up these huge stones put them in place and quickly surpasses his brother and who you know he completes it he gets a lifetime of wealth while the other one's still struggling to get the job done and it just was like a, a story highlighting that initial lack of progress when seeking innovation. But then once you get the innovation, the leverage that it provides is able to accelerate the growth afterwards. And it sounds like that's kind of what you guys did.
1: That's ultimately what entrepreneurship is, right? Uh, you take the time to build something that then creates, um, basically dissociates your time from your impact, whether the impact is generating revenue or reaching more people, in our case, educating uh future and current physicians and other healthcare professionals. I mean, that's essentially what we're all doing here. And most of your listeners are, are, are that second brother. They're spending yeah. a lot of time and taking a lot of risks because the machines may not work. Um, it's also one reason tech companies are valued so highly because you spend a lot of time and money building a product but then your gross margins are going to be so much higher like SaaS companies, 80 plus percent gross margins, because you've taken the time to build a product so that the variable cost of servicing another customer or another customer is so low compared to say, you know, if you're, if you're a fully just service oriented company, then uh, clearly you have to have all these people who spend a lot of time and the gross margins are lower. So um, it's just really interesting uh, yeah. way to look. at entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the actual innovation and learning, like, what was the difference that you were seeing in the traditional way that they were approaching? Let's say med students were, were approaching studying and, and, and gathering and, and, and retaining information versus what you guys were tinkering with that you thought would accelerate or make that more efficient.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the way medical school and other health professional schools are structured is you have uh, they often will say it's uh, a parade of experts. Um, you have all these lecturers who come in, give you thirty-minute, sixty-minute, ninety-minute lectures, and you know a subset of that content is actually useful for your exams or your, or your clinical practice. Um, so first of all, the lectures can be made more efficient, right? So what one of the one of our biggest wins has been we recruited a team that used to run Khan Academy, Health and Medicine, okay, and so have built this massive video library, best-in-class video library of over 2,000 videos that are 5 to 20 minutes in length that essentially replace a lot of those one-hour lectures. So you're saving a bunch of time on the, on the upfront, basically having a really fun, engaging 10-minute um, video that summarizes a 60-minute lecture, uh, obviously, and saves you 50 minutes, which then you can apply to more active learning strategies, uh, not just watching a video or a lecture, but actually taking practice questions, which is proven to be a better way to learn and retain things because then you're ultimately testing your knowledge it's one thing to read about or watch basketball games it's another thing to actually get on the court and take you know hundreds of shots before practice before official practice even begins and so similarly practice questions and then not not just answering these questions but then Uh, revising them. So there's something called spaced repetition, where, you know, you may know the answer to a question like the day after you learn something, but then a month after you're going to forget it, um, Mm -hmm. or even a week after. And so we have an algorithm that will automatically ping you with uh, additional questions related to that topic, you know, weeks, months later. And then more importantly, one thing that makes medicine different than say learning a language or math or something like that, is that the, th- the actual content changes, right? We saw this over the last 18 months with COVID. Uh, you know, there's new variants that come out, new drugs, new vaccines. And so as a clinician, you have to update your knowledge. That's why continuing medical education is a $3 billion revenue market in the US. It's mandated that you update your knowledge and it's also the right moral thing to do. You need to be a lifelong learner. And so we have a, a tool that will automatically update you when, when we change our content because a guideline change changes, everyone who's ever seen that content will get an update. And that's very similar to what LinkedIn does. Like, Mm. you know, LinkedIn will say, hey, somebody you knew in your network has changed jobs. Why don't you congratulate them? We basically borrowed that idea from LinkedIn and now we'll update you when the content changes. So taken together, the the first big innovation was a massive, awesome library of content. Um, Not, sorry, not temporally. First we built like the learning science stuff and then we got the video library. But um, in terms of use utilization, the first big uh, growth hack that we had and, and unique selling proposition for osmosis was this massive video library and then built on top of
0: these more sophisticated algorithms that help you learn more efficiently. Oh, totally makes sense. So the initial part is just saying like, hey, there's a lot of fluff in the 60 minutes when we really could condense it down to 10. So we're saving, like you said, 50 minutes there. Second, is it almost like a a micro learning approach, this breaking it into chunks, repetition, you know, reminding people after the fact, is that, is that kind of what it is? Exactly. Yep. Okay. And then what, what I'm next curious about is you had a very specific mission, right? Which is to become a doctor and here you sell, now you find yourself pivoting into being an entrepreneur and a business owner. Was that a difficult decision to, to move towards that and away from the other?
1: Um, I mean, it's difficult actually leaving med school to take time off to do this uh, because obviously I've worked a lot to get to medical school and then to take time off and maybe jeopardize actually completing that mission. However, you know, in college, I was a biomedical engineer. I mentioned I wrote two books, I started clubs. Uh, this was my first business that I started. But up until that point, essentially I was doing entrepreneurship, right? Like uh, for example, I, was, I used to tutor a lot of students on SAT, ACT college admissions back in high school and college. And like, again, I would spend an hour with every student and my time, I only had you know 12 to 16 working hours a day to do that on top of other things I wanted to do. And so I wound up starting to write a lot of my lessons out. Um, and then that turned into a book. And so whenever somebody would email me or ask me for help, I just send them the book. Um, similarly mm-hmm. with osmosis, like that's the whole, again, the parable that you shared with the two Egyptian brothers, same kind of deal. So I'd been doing entrepreneurship for a long time, but not not like businesses with the idea of just generating revenue, other types of impact. And so I still want to go back and finish med school. Actually, I'm on leave still. So I'm still a medical student technically. Uh, and the joke internally at the company is, uh, I'll finish med school when I can get my degree from osmosis. Um, (laughs) but, but at the same time, like, um, I do, I do think that my best ideas have come from personal experiences. That's why I want to finish med school because I want to continue innovating and improving healthcare and education. And I think actually being a physician and seeing patients, um, is where you get your best, uh, innovations or best strokes of epiphanies about problems, because if you're trying to design something for a whole market that you don't even know, that's just much harder. I'm very impressed with people who can do that because they're able to get such empathy for their customers without actually personally experience the problem. Whereas obviously we were students, we were building a tool for ourselves, which is why we were able to to build something successful.
0: Yeah. So in your future right now, you're imagining actually con- becoming a, a practicing physician and still having osmosis yeah so i mean there's so we've reached the size and scale um luckily with you know as you saw with inc 5000
1: which is the name of your podcast um so two years in a row we've done Ink 5000 so we have enough revenue now where we've been able to hire some really amazing leaders um most recently i hired a, a chief operating officer named derek apanovich who uh his claim to fame before osmosis was he scaled a company called ultimate medical academy from about 10 million revenue to 300 million revenue as their president and so starting to surround myself with people who've done it before or like you know i'm a zero to one type of person i can ten, i can i can go more but like you know there are options where either i will still be ceo and growing and my obviously my job has changed a lot over the last few years um I've considered maybe I'll become chairman and Derek will run it or some, you know, something like that so that I can then go back and finish med school. There are all sorts of ways to be creative. And I think that's something entrepreneurs have, have to be, have in common is be balance, opportunism and strategy at the same time. So my strategy remains to become a physician, uh, but the opportunity of osmosis came to be. Similarly, the strategy of osmosis is to grow and reach more learners. But if the opportunity strikes itself because I get a good hire, I can maybe go back and finish at some point.
0: I love it. I love it. So I want to talk about that some. If we look back at the early stages, uh, what was your role like then before you were able to scale and started bringing more leadership? And what were some of the early challenges of getting this company off the ground?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, my co-founder and I, uh, luckily, he his nickname in, in med school is Dr. Zuckerberg because he was a self-taught coder. And like even before he met me, he was like, working on different uh platforms so he basically was just building and i i did some coding too like i built the analytics page for the company but like division of labor ever since adam smith is clear that you've got to be able to do that and you know every hour i was spending coding was you know something he could do in five minutes it would take me an hour to code so it's like okay ryan does coding and builds the platform shift does everything else and so you know um basically getting our users talking to the talking to our customers getting the students to crowdsource questions, um, you know, uh, recruiting teammates, uh, getting funding, uh, all of that. So uh, I wore basically every hat. And when we first took time off of med school, we all moved into a house together. There was Ryan and me, and then we had our first two employees. So four of us were living in a house. And so I would joke that like my day would start off as the dishwasher and janitor of the house, because I would wake up earlier than anyone else, like five, 6 a.m. and, and take care of the dishes, take the trash out. And then later that day, you know, signing a $5,000 contract with a university back then, it's obviously gone up since then. Um, And so chief salesperson. And so that basically you do everything. And that's part of the excitement as an entrepreneur. But then as you get more resources, clearly, you know, I'm not the best dishwasher. I'm not the best salesperson. Debatable still, because I still think founders (laughs) sometimes are are the best salespeople because the passion is right there. But um, you're able to spend more time doing the things you' really what your unique ability is. And mine is connecting with people, building relationships. Um, I obviously get very involved with like the big deals that come our way. Um, and then with teammates, whenever new teammates join welcoming them, helping make sure they're part of the vision and, and mission and have the right cultural attributes for for our company.
0: Yeah, let's go to this to the early sales. I'm always fascinated about that, where you you have to get somebody to take chances on you, right? Your first subset of customers, are people that aren't able to look at a track record that you have and and say, yeah, you've got all these great referrals. We'll do the same thing here. You got to convince somebody, right? What was that like getting the first, was it universities? Was it hospitals? Like, What was it like to get them to, to give you guys a chance?
1: Yeah. So um, we started off as a B2C company, right? Just students building stuff for other students. Okay. And so that B2C companies have a very different path, like where we were very much product-led growth, PLG is what it's called. We had introduced a freemium model. Um, and actually, initially, revenue didn't matter as much as feedback, right? The, the most important uh, form of compensation I think you can get in your first few days, months, maybe even years, depending on what you're building, um, is is honest, critical feedback to make sure if this is a good thing or not. I mean, um, you know, we so we didn't charge like the first year. We just wanted people using it, seeding it, getting good feedback, building it. Um, and then, then we started introducing business models to, to charge upon it. So taking a chance, I mean, we obviously had some credibility coming from Hopkins. We built a product that people did like. Um, so it was more like, again, product-led growth. But then when we started transitioning from just B2C to now B2B, and to give you a sense of our scale, we have 1.7 million registered users, um, uh, nearly 100,000 of them have paid directly B2C. Mm. And then we have over 140 institutions right now, medical, nursing, PA schools, ranging from NYU Med, uh, which is the number two medical school in the U.S., to um, just today, we signed a large university in the U.K., um, and we have about 25 international universities at this point. So what was the first one? The first one was uh, actually because we were so strong B2C, the first one came from that channel where the students were raving about osmosis. They petitioned their faculty and admins to get on board. So we got an inbound saying, hey, like our cool. students are using you guys. Are you interested in, you know, do you do group discounts? And we're like, well, yeah, I guess so. Like we never really considered it. We weren't thinking of building a team, a sales team, but, you know, it's nice to be able to sell to one one point of contact and then have like a, you know, $20,000 contract versus selling to 200 people, you sure. know, uh, you know, hundred, a dollars a pop. Um, so we're, as we've evolved and grown, we've gone more,
0: we we're growing really quickly B2B, um, uh, because of our B2C success. Makes total sense. And what would you say is the biggest change in the model as it starts to shift from B2C to B2B? Yeah, it changes
1: a lot of things. I mean, um, it's, you know, ranging from your gross margin profile because, you know, for B2B, we were deciding, okay, it's one thing to sell a university. It's another thing to renew them. So we needed account management. And so I was doing all the account management initially, but then was, okay, who's your first person to do account management full-time? And then you have to decide as you scale a sales team, you know, do you, um, do, you do an inside sales team? um and actually take take the risk of compensating people with a base and their variable salary with commissions or do you do an outside sales team and then just don't take that hit initially of on your cash and just just kind of take the hit in the margin and so we scaled with an outside sales team first and then as we became bigger in that channel b2b became a bigger part of our business we then hired a vpf sales and then hired some account executives and account um, uh, managers um, I still think it's super related because you know if you if you sell b2B and then your end users, whether those are faculty or students in our case are not actually using it then your renewal rates are going to go down. For at osmosis our renewal rates are over 90% and our wow. net uh, revenue retention is over hundred percent so it basically means that like just yesterday uh, one of the universities that we sold in Mexico has expanded to another include another 500 students so every year they're adding more students and more campuses and more programs to osmosis or adding osmosis to those programs and campuses. And so that's really great because it basically means we have this embedded subscribed user base. These are two, three, four-year contracts. Um, and that's also one thing in the financial markets that that's valuable, right? So fixed contracts that are multi-year um, that are
0: increasing in, in size. Yeah, man, well done. My, my, my question would be, uh, are you guys able to track and, and and compare certain results and metrics based on learning, I don't know, learning efficiency or something like that using your program versus without it? Or is it more just driven by the, the consumer subjective experience? Like, I just, I prefer this. Well, definitely that. I mean,
1: definitely the subjective experience, because if they didn't, if there weren't, benefiting from it they wouldn't keep using it um, right. because they're the ones getting the impact of like okay I, I tried it with osmosis I didn't try it with osmosis and so the times I did osmosis I got uh, yeah I got A's or I got uh, high I felt more comfortable or in our case Ryan in my case and many other health professional students I had to study less to get the same result Right. So when I study less, I can spend more time with patients. I can spend more time doing research. I can do all these other things that are important to me. I can spend more time with family. Right. Yeah. Less, yeah. Stress, right? less stress. Um, uh, so, you know, we have definitely the subjective and the high engagement. Our content has been viewed over uh, 500 million times to date. So like a lot of engagement. Um, but then as far as research backed. Uh, so all of our stuff is based on evidence. So, you know, before we've done we haven't done like a randomized control trial those are really hard to do in education because you can't like morally you can't say okay half the students you're going to use osmosis half the students you can't and then like let them some pass and fail like it's not it's not what they want to do or schools want to do but we have evidence that uh um, like we're based on very proven learning science techniques um and so uh we've published about 12 research papers osmosis.org for slash research and a ton of white papers osmosis.org for slash educators and that's been really helpful credibility
0: to be able to keep growing man uh, super impressive you know and in, in, in particular i have a friend who also went to johns hopkins he's now down here at emory uh for some family reasons he, he moved and the more I, I i've spent time with him the more i've noticed and learned from him how stressed out and burnt out doctors can be on a regular basis from all the demands on them, right? Not just during the med school days, but even beyond and the doctor errors that can happen from that is, is that part of, is that, is any of this touching that for the ongoing physician or their plans in the future to keep improving even just the the doctor's quality of life and experience? Like he says, they can be more focused on patients and have more mental bandwidth Versus constantly feeling like they're just barely hanging on, right? Well, there's a a famous physician at
1: Hopkins named Dr. Marty McCary, uh, who actually just came out of the book recently, too. And one of his most famous studies was that medical errors, the third leading cause of death in the U.S., there's about a 747s worth of passengers who die every week from medical error. Um, and most medical, most medical errors systemic, right? So it's like, you know, the processes broke down, we weren't using checklists. Um, it's not, you know, a doctor just didn't know the right diagnosis or there's definitely a lot of that, but it's not, um, a lot of it's systemic. And so one reason doctors are burning out is obviously the work hours. Um, it's a really tough career. It's painful to see your patients die, especially during the COVID pandemic. A lot of, a lot of people, uh, passed away, despite our best efforts and Herculean efforts from doctors and nurses and others. So it's just inherently a stressful career. Yeah. But then, um, you know, certainly the educational burden on top of that isn't 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 great. And uh, requiring people to go and do in-person training versus online, more efficient training from home uh, are things we can use to alleviate the burden. One of our largest investors and partners at Osmosis is a company called Coveris. And they're a huge medical malpractice insurance company. So they insure doctors and others, uh, hospitals and health systems against medical malpractice. And so we have a whole course we did with them identifying using their database, the 10 most common reasons uh, for malpractice issues for physicians being sued and have a whole set of content that are for current and future health professionals. So they can preempt and hopefully understand um, what are the things that, okay, if I'm an emergency doc, what's the number one or two reasons I would get sued eventually and then be on the lookout for that. So we're kind of like minority report style, trying to intervene before the, 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 the error actually takes place. Um, so certainly that's, that's always been part of our, our vision is not just help
0: people pass tests, but help them become better clinicians to, 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 to boot. Love it. Love it. Uh, you know, what I want to know now is on the business side of this, you getting to, to really have your first go as being a founder, uh, what have you found most surprising and even most challenging uh for you personally? Like your your kind of ride in this journey being at the head of it. What's that been like for you? Yeah. I mean, the most challenging thing I think is focus.
1: I mean, everyone says it. It's one of those things that like I think it boils down again to strategy versus opportunity. So are you a strategic thinker or are, are you opportunistic? And I've been very opportunistic all my life. Um, you know, uh, my high school yearbook quote was, the more pieces of wood you have in the fire, the more likely one is to catch. Uh, and so I've always done like a lot of different things. And, um, you know, when you're kind of a big fish in a small pond, it's very easy for a lot of those pieces of wood to catch. Mm-hmm. But then as you you know, get into the, the professional world, you know, it's, it's hard because you're a jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. And so um, it's been very difficult to stay focused because a- as you become more and more successful in terms of revenue or impact, or, you know, we have 2 million YouTube subscribers now, so we get inquiries literally every day about partnerships or something. Can you do osmosis for accounting? Can you do, you know, can you work with us in uh, in India? Um, you know, all sorts of opportunities come our way. And it, I'm just naturally one who, you know, I've always said yes and been like very like and that's worked out str- extremely well for me, but I've had to tamper myself and surround myself with people who are more able to put in process and say, okay, like we we only have limited, startups have limited time, money, and then first impressions. So yes, we're gonna go to India. Yes, we're gonna do nursing, but uh, it's yes, and we'll do that in a year. Or like, so it's, it's on the roadmap. And so just getting more discipline around focus and which opportunities to take has been very difficult. Um, And then what's very rewarding, I mean, obviously we started this company. It's been rewarding to see the learner growth, the partner growth, um, the revenue growth, all that's great. But the most rewarding thing is actually the people who were with us back when we were sub 1 million revenue are still with us today. They all have much higher titles. They're all paid six figures and they've all picked up Tons of new skills. Like, wow. and they were kind of entry level contributors, and then now we're managing teams of thirty people. One that manages a thirty person team within the company, and so that's been the most rewarding thing is those relationships. And certainly, if I start new companies, several of them I'd wanna wanna go back to and say, Hey, look, like you're an incredible uh, developer or engineering leader. I really want to work with you again um, if it's a new company. Uh, and then frankly, some of them are being poached, like not, not, not the originals, but some of our other teammates where it's all, I'm also kind of proud of this, like companies like Spotify and Facebook have poached some of our talent, uh, um, unity, a large software company out in Canada. And like, that's, that's pretty cool. Like I think like it's obviously disruptive to the company that people would leave, but like, but I think it's good for them. And like, I think ultimately if you treat your team and they know that, you're gonna act in their best interest, and you know all three of those folks who have who left in the last few months to those large companies approached me first and said, "Is that okay?" Um, or they approached mm. their manager first, and we said, "Yes, like we want to see you shine." Like it's it's almost like the parent who like wants like ultimately you do you feel sad, and it's disruptive to having an empty nest, but like you want um, your employees to have a good tour of duty at your company and then be able with with your brand and what you built. Uh, to even find themselves at other amazing companies like like Spotify, so
0: sure, man, yeah, it's a, it's a compliment, right? Like it's in a, in a weird way, it's it's like you said, it's str- disruptive, yet it's also a compliment that we're doing something right, that they'd be this desirable. I'll, there's much to unpack here. I want to go back to this idea of focus, and it's just such a interesting kind of paradox to me that our greatest strengths can also at times be our challenge, you know, our weakness in a sense. And so the strength that you have to innovate, to be agile, to, to see opportunities and, 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 and be able to capitalize on them is likely leads to a lot of early success. Right. But then at some point it can start to lead to maybe a, um, even a hindrance to growth right because you could be overcommitted and not enough resources to to say yes to everything and do it well or you, it could lead to confusion amongst the team are we serving this are we serving this like what's our focus here right uh so makes total sense even if you look at like there's a there's a, a study that was done i think out of michigan university of michigan uh where they talked about these four competing values called the competing values Framework. And that inside of an organization, there's four values always present, and they're in direct conflict with one of them. And so for you, like my natural guess is you'd be in the innovation and agility quadrant. That's a value, right? Across from it, its blind spot is process and precision, right? So it's just interesting. It's like they're both needed, but they have to learn to see each other and to utilize each other in a great working relationship. Otherwise, it'll be a blind spot or a conflict spot. A conflict point right so i'm curious for you what did it look like to not shut down your gifting to not shut down you know the opportunistic opportunistic part of you but to build in the focus and the process and precision
1: yeah it's a really really. thanks for introducing me to that framework i'm gonna to have to look it up um you know it's it's been challenging i, I just have to say like because i mean my values i agreed innovation creativity we have six core values at osmosis um you know imagine more is our creative value um uh, reach further so constant improvement um it's basically modeled after the vitruvian man because we're a medical education companies so it's like uh you know each one i'll send you the video later um You know, it's been difficult. I mean, some teams have done a lot better. So our content team is large and well-resourced and that team, we have a sub team within it called Diffusion Studios. that does kind of services client work and it's our farm where we do a lot of innovative things. We've introduced, you know, what do we do? We have live footage with our animations. So there's an innovative core within them um, doing client work basically. And then whenever we stumble upon some cool format or a new idea, that can make its way into the core, which is more process-driven, more precision, as you mentioned. Um, and so that that's a good example of a team that I think has done a pretty good job. Some of our other teams, they just haven't been as well-resourced, and and so we don't have even have enough people. We may have some very innovative R&D folks on our engineering team, but not as many process. we we started adding that, and there's obviously tension. Um, sure. And I think it's important for organizations to have tension. It's how they deal with the tension. Um, you know, everyone should be slightly unhappy uh everyone will hopefully be very happy generally happy but like the mark of a good deal is whether both parties are slightly unhappy because <laughs> nobody got everything they wanted yeah um, and, so I, and i got that from one of my i'm an eo entrepreneurs organization yeah um and so which i'm sure you know and a lot of your listeners probably are in that group um one of my eo forum mates just told me that like last week and so um Yeah, there's definitely that tension. And that's also one reason I brought on our COO, because I'm very much on one side, as you said, and uh, kind of instead of me doing what's not my unique ability, which is, you know, setting up a ton of processes and stuff, um,
0: finding people who can do that with me. Yeah, So just to fill that out for you and for the audience, the other two is teamwork and and employee experience. And then across from that is uh, results and discipline. Right. So where those can be in conflict is if you have a results and driven a results and discipline driven individual, they all they care about is what are we doing? Like, what is the end goal? Are we winning? Well, how do we know we're winning? And let's get this shit done on the opposite side for them is teamwork and employee experience, which is more about how are we doing? Are people happy? Are they engaged? Do we have trust amongst each other? That kind of thing. And they have a natural conflict because one's going, why are we talking about all this mushy-gushy stuff? Like, let's just go take the hill, right? And the other people are like, you're cold-hearted. You, we, you need to care about how we're doing here. And again, it's a natural conflict and tension, but that tension can be really good once they start to understand the value of the other quadrant. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, very relatable to Super helpful. Like, man, we've, we can talk about this afterwards. We've started helping teams actually do discovery on this, where they can see where each team member or leadership person is. And they start to have a massive breakthrough on that's why, you know, we're so, it's so hard to work with you. But now that I understand this, we can start to understand how to work together better. Like for you, if you have someone that's like an immature uh, or doesn't understand your gifting of innovation and agility, it will, they, you will always stress them out. Because they will feel like you're moving too fast and you're over committing and you're pie in the sky. And then you're, you're going to be frustrated with them because it feels like they're always pissing on your fire or like you've got a balloon of an idea and they're always poking holes in it before you've even had a chance to like tell them why it's going to work. They're like, nope, can't work for this reason, can't work for this reason. But then when they work together well, kind of like a COO and a, and a CEO sometimes is that process of precision person makes the dreams come true, Right. And they actually bring your ideas to life, and it becomes a really beautiful relationship. Uh, so, anyways, that's that. I wanted to fill that out so for people listening. And then, secondly, you've you've mentioned a few times unique ability. Uh, is is that because you guys have utilized EOS? Is that where that language is coming from?
1: It. it I, I have a coach who, who first introduced that language to me. But yeah, EOS. Uh, I we don't operate on EOS yet, but uh, I'm strongly considering making that making that shift in the coming months. So, um, yeah, I mean that, that uh, we, we, two years ago, the executive team got together and we did a retreat. We do one every six months COVID obviously put a kibosh on some of that. Um, but, uh, we did the whole good to great Jim Collins, what's our hedgehog concept, right? Right. What are we best yep. in the world at what are we passionate about and what
0: drives our economic engine? And so very similar unique ability. Yeah. Have you found frameworks like that to be, to be very helpful for the, for the organization?
1: yeah i mean there's obviously hundreds of frameworks and like you can definitely read too much and consume too much and ultimately you have to pick one and, and apply it and that's why what's partly why I like eos is um if, I, if we do pick it it's it seems like a very clear-cut one there's a lot of people on it um and so it's like okr's kind of thing but i think this one yeah. could be even more because okrs are just one of like 50 you know 10 or eight a tools like eos offers um, and so I think that's one reason it's so appealing. It seems comprehensive. Um, but yeah, the frameworks are helpful because it's a shared language and people will understand, you know, um, yeah, you know, basically shared language. I mean, how do you communicate to the engine like trying to communicate to our engineering team is often I feel like talking Mandarin. Um, you know, it's very difficult and like we just don't speak the same language on, on certain things, like, you know, why are there bugs? Why is there float? Like, you know, why are there things that are like we just don't under like why are things shipping a little late? But this is a common issue across many different companies. But having yeah. a shared understanding of what what does waterfall development look like, what does agile or scrum development look like, uh, can, can really help people see eye to eye.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm curious now, I'll take a slightly different angle. Just as a founder, it can be so all-consuming to work in the business, right? There's so many things you're just responding to every day that we can often lose value or sight for backing up even like you said every six months for for let's say just a a day-long meeting or something where you get to ask some bigger questions who are we really where are we really going What are the actual problems underneath the issues and that kind of stuff was that something from the beginning that you've done a good job of balancing or did that get introduced later where you're like you know what i think i actually need to step back and ask some good questions
1: yeah, it's a good, it was not at the beginning. So yeah, we were definitely like in it. And a lot of the conventional wisdom now, like, you know, don't work 15 hour or 20 hour work days, right? Um, you spend, take a vacation, right? All these things that we now are doing, like asking, like literally telling people to take two weeks off, um, especially after COVID uh, to recharge and reset are things that we can afford to do now. Like when we were first starting and you we know, pre revenue it was all sweat equity. Yeah. We weren't doing that stuff. And sometimes I wonder, I wonder, like there's no counterfactual. If we had done that stuff back when we were starting, would we be more successful or less successful now uh, or the same? I don't know. But I do know that it's pretty in popular fashion for people once they achieve a certain amount of revenue or impact to then say, yes, you should absolutely take vacation. You should absolutely, <laughs> you know, um, you know, don't work 20 hours a day, like. And I understand that, but I also think people forget. It's like the whole expert fallacy or, or bias. Yeah, people will for people forget, but like what it was like. Like I, 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 even find myself forgetting what it was like to work all that time with no revenue, no money, like no no income. It's stressful. Uh, and so yes. like now with now with like more resources, it's like it's easy to forget that. And I I want to make I want to hopefully not forget that. And I think this is right. one reason people who start second or third companies sometimes will be at an advantage because they're able to incorporate a lot of the lessons with customer discovery and they have more money to put into the business, et cetera, upfront. But at the same time, they can sometimes fail because they forget like the early grind that is startups.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we embrace this idea of four season, four reason, right? That this is not a forever way of approaching a B or C, but, it's for season for a reason, right? So are we, are we in grind mode? Then we're going to have to probably accept that we're going to work longer hours for a reason. Right. But you, you can get stuck in a mode where that mode doesn't work anymore that we actually need to pivot or adjust or, you know, take a step back and, and whatever. But I love how, you know, like you were talking about forgetting it's very similar to to childbirth, right? Like my wife has had three kids and every time it like surprised her, how challenging it was again, because there's some part of the brain that just likes to forget it. Like, yeah. yeah, it wasn't that bad. And you're like, no, I was there. It was bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you were in a lot of pain. Um, and, and then you hear like, you know, people talk about like, let's say morning routines, which I love. I'm a big fan of morning routines. But often they forget the context of the average human being. And they're like, you should wake up at four o'clock. You should dive into a 15 foot plunge tank that's, you know, at 40 degrees water. And then you should do a personal yoga session. And they're like, bro, who's got a personal plunge tank at their house besides you, Tony Robbins? You know, who's got yeah, exactly. time? aren't your kids up and running around and you're doing a personal yoga session in your in your mansion? Like, we gotta translate this to the average human being. What's really realistic? Does that make sense? Totally. I think I mean people forget compounding.
1: Like I think the power of compounding where, you know, it's it's very like it's very much There are, sorry, there are certain habits that can be stacked, right? I'm sure you've read James Clear, Atomic Habits. Yep. And like, there's definitely things that can be stacked. Like if you even early on when I wasn't working out versus when I was working out, uh, whether it was grind mode or not grind mode, working out to me, at least, and I think to a lot of people, it just makes you think clearer, makes you happier. It's um, a good anchor. Yeah, it's a good anchor anchor habit or seed habit, as we call it. And um so there are certain things that it's like yeah you just got to make time to do it if it if it's something important to you like like sleep like you got to sleep like and maybe it's not sleep eight hours every night perfectly but um you know because there's definitely sprint weeks like when we right before we did a demo day we weren't sleeping much like we had to just get it done and so i I agree like people forget compounding like what got them you know the whole one percent better every day and then at the end of the year 27 times better or whatever um people forget that like like tony robbins and stuff like yeah like you you establish a morning routine after years and years and years of of being able to get to that success level where
0: you're able it's like a privilege to be able to do that yeah yeah so this could be a whole other conversation but we do a lot of work with kind of energy management like how to keep people from burning out and sustained high performance levels for long periods of time and so to me it's about at least the minimum dose of effectiveness like there's a there's an there's an equation there's energy output and then there's got to be energy input right and so we need to some way work with that equation otherwise we're constantly going into debt and to me we have like the sexy idea of all the things we should be doing but all i care about is the actual result that you need right so it's like hey man if working out gets you you know get your head in the right place and whatever then what How do we build that into your schedule, you know, and your morning routine? Don't care what you do as long as you enter the day feeling ready for the day. That's all a morning routine needs to be, that you're not dragging ass in there, stressed out and already feeling behind. But you had like, you know, I was an athlete, so I had a pregame ritual. I like to think about my morning routine as just a pregame ritual. What is the thing that gets my head, my heart, my body kind of ready for the challenge of the day and that it's predictable? That I can rely on that routine to predictably put me in a, in a performance state before the day even starts. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. What, what did you? What did you? Uh, what, what sport were you in? I was a soccer player.
1: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And then I I, think, and everything else. Good. Wake. I did competitive wakeboarding for a while and, and stuff like that. So, <laughs> uh, I, I. But soccer was my main thing, and that's where I learned through like the Olympic Development Program and stuff like that with sports psychologists and things. That just started to teach us a little, like one percent better. Like James Clear, I had him on my podcast uh, last year, two years ago, that's and awesome. it was that same same idea of like the slight edge theory, right? Uh, how do you get just uh, how do you how do you recover? How do you not just play really hard on the field, but like how do you actually recover so that you can do it again the next day and handle the pressure and things like that? Was always fascinating to me. Hmm.
1: That's a, that's that's really cool, and I agree. Like another person, I'm sure you're familiar with is Josh Waitzkin. He wrote The yes. Art of Learning, and he was a competitive chess player, then became a competitive martial artist, uh, and won world championships, in, or not world championships in chess, but was at the top, 1%, top 0.1%, maybe even top 0.01% of all of those fields. Um, and he just, you know, I wrote an amazing book about uh, the art of learning. And yeah. uh, high performance rituals, which are really important to get to that point, and clearly, like a lot of your listeners, you know, to to, to build companies. First of all, that's like a different group of people, and then uh, to be build a company that's growing really quickly and really big. Um, that's a, that's another set. So um, I think it's like most people, I'm sure, who are listening to this, you know, probably have some sort of ritual and realize that the importance to that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, what I learned from Josh Waitzkin, not uh, the way I said that makes it sound like I know him personally, but just from listening to the podcast and, and reading his book was the idea of um, cross-applicational learning, right? That he realized that there was things that he learned that made him really good at chess that he could apply to anything else. And I think you're realizing that as well And, and with your company. It sounds like you're starting to branch out into potentially other opportunities outside of the medical field is that if it works here, what if it works over there? Like, Could we apply some of the same learnings to other industries or other challenges? Is that something you guys are starting to see as an opportunity? Yeah, and we definitely have gotten
1: a lot of inbound opportunity ever since we started uh, to, to apply osmosis to other fields and other places. And and again, I think the best way to think about it is like, look, we've got to stay focused on the core. That's what drives our, it's our unique abilities, what drives our economic engine too. But um, if there are extra resources we can put hundred thousand dollars towards this experiment or you know to like with a max number of experiments and so we've done content for non-medical fields as one example just to see how it goes and um and uh and yeah like i think honestly we have to get a little better at kind of pre like like running the experiment like going into it what are the goals and then being very brutally honest, whether it succeeded or not, and then
0: deciding to double down or or, or pull. Um, That's just a process we have to get better at, too. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I wanted before we moved on from that subject, I wanted to ask, are there any keystone, you know, uh, habits or rituals for you today that that work well for you? Yeah, it's my, I actually wrote a, a
1: article for Forbes uh, called uh, wow. Seed Habits, plant, plant Your Seed Habits. And okay. I'll, I'll send it to you later. Yeah, um, please. And my, my seed habit was strength training. So I was always like an endurance kind of cardio person, you know, triathlons, Ironman, that kind of stuff. And like whenever I was doing cardio, uh, I would mostly be um, – Uh, I'd mostly be like listening to rock music or rap music or something to get my heart rate up um, and and keep me driving and uh, running fast or whatever. But then when I switched, when I started doing strength training, um, you know, you're doing, you know, uh, eight sets of five if you're lifting heavy um, and you're resting a minute or two in between. So I was just listening to audiobooks uh, I always liked audiobooks, but I couldn't find the time because I did also worked distributed and remote, so I didn't have like a commute to, to to really engage with audiobooks. But the strength training brought me into the, the place where I was listening to at least an hour of an audiobook every day at two mm-hmm. or three x. So, you know, so every week was reading one or two books. So planting the seed habit of strength training got me reading more. Uh, got me uh, waking up earlier because I had more ex- more more energy from the strength training, um, and then got me into some of the books I was reading things like can't kill or, um, what can't kill you. I forgot. There's both a Goggins book. And there's also yeah. a book about Scott Scott Carney wrote about Wim Hof. Um, you know, just exposed me to new ideas. Like we talked yeah. about some of these, like James clear and, and Waitskin, um, that I may not have been exposed to as early as I have been. And then that helped me develop additional habits. Like I went vegetarian after reading the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, so I would say that was my seed habit of strength training. And then, I make sure to do that at least four to six times a week and then from that reading books waking up early meditating you know doing cold showers like experimenting with some of these other ones that all kind of stacked from the seed
0: habit i freaking love that yes it's like the one thing that can many things can emerge which is brilliant the idea of seed and you also recycled like you found one block of time that you were able to use for two purposes which is really yeah. kind of cool that you were able to get your learning in while you were getting your, your strength training in. Um, man, I've got several questions on that. So before I move on to my second question, the first would be, out of some of those things you've experimented with, which of those have been surprising in the results? Meditation, cold shower, whatever else is in that. Which of those have been like actually surprising? We're like, dang, that, is, that gives me a great return.
1: I mean, so not so like strength training. on you would be good because there's like it's like formulaic, um, and so that's been really good. in reading, obviously, we know that. Um, I'm sure you're a fan of Ryan Holiday too, at the Daily Stoic, yes. and he likes to quote. He likes to quote. Um, who is it? There's one of these generals was Eisenhower someone who basically said, um, if you aren't, if you haven't read hundreds of books, you're functionally illiterate. So even though you can read, <laughs> if you aren't reading, you're still like functionally illiterate. I haven't illiterate. heard that. That's awesome. Or like the other one he says, it's a president who said this, all, maybe Woodrow Wilson, he said, all um, all readers are not leaders, but all leaders are readers. Yes. Right? All leaders have to read. Yes. Um And so, yeah, I would say those are obvious and expected benefits, but I think the one that I've experimented with that I actually still make a habit, because you experiment with a lot of things, right? Like you try a lot exactly. of different things. Yeah. And, and like not all habits stick, and that's fine. You You only have a limited amount of time, so you don't, You shouldn't pressure yourself to keep habits that aren't working for you. One of the most interesting ones is the breath holes, the the Wim Hof breath holes. I
0: don't know if you have you tried this. I haven't. So that's why I'm asking about some of these because I've experimented with some cold showers and I haven't turned it into a daily habit. But it has been a when I need it, I know what what it'll do for me. And I'm very familiar with Wim Hof just, you know, uh, from his work, from all the different interviews he's done, but I've never actually tried it. So tell me about it. Here's a good, I mean, an app, it's pretty easy. Uh, Wim Hof method app um,
1: okay. that, that can get you into it. And like, uh, like a lot of times I'll find that like, literally just downloading an app will be enough to change my habit. Right. Cause I, I was like thinking of doing it when I read the book and then like, couldn't really fit it in, but then the app made it super easy to do it. Um, and so I, what's really cool about it is basically getting this sense of euphoria. So you do Set several sets of rounds of breath holes. It takes 10 15 minutes. And then when you do your breath hold, you can get to like you know two three minute breath holes. Um, and then you take a breath in and hold it for 15 seconds. At the end of that 15 seconds, you can feel kind of euphoric and like tingly, right? And like that's like a cool feeling. It's like cold showers, too. A lot of these things you do just so you can kind of they build mental resilience and toughness just because they expand it's like visiting another country. It's like, now I can get around and I understand how to like, how to travel. Similarly, like I understand more about my body and that, that can help extra, like help basically help you build resilience and willpower, which which then translates, as you said, with weight skin, uh, it yeah. translates to other areas of your life, which are important.
0: It also seems like a, almost a state change. You know, Tony Robbins talks about that a lot. That like, often to change your emotional state, you have to change your physiological state. And so in moments like that, if I'm like oh, stressed and I can't seem to like get myself out of that kind of heightened stress level, I've a cold shower has been one for me. I'll go on a real, I'll go on a run here in the Georgia hot summer and be like really hot. And then I'll just get in a cold shower and that tingly whatever, but it seems to like, I don't know, make my body either dump those, you know, stress chemicals and, and it just kind of has a state change. Does that make sense? Total sense. Yeah. And so I, I would imagine that'd be beneficial for you as well. Not just the resilient side, but even like the state it puts you in that might be, you know, for the moment, able to think clearer, more calmly, make decisions, not maybe as rashly or things like that. Is that. Has that been a benefit? Definitely. I mean, I think, I think the, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs uh, have had the
1: experience I think of waking up at three or 4am and being like, Oh my God, like, what am I doing? Like, uh, you know, payroll or customer loss of a customer or whatever it may be a bad employee, all that stuff um, uh, can kind of come up. But what I found in those moments, if I'm just able to get back to sleep for like an hour or two hours, even 30 minutes uh, and wake up, I feel much better. Right. And so yeah. what's really interesting yeah. is I think a lot of us, we look at, like, we're very forgiving to children, because obviously, you know, like a toddler, I'm you've had this experience three times yep. over, where, you know, if they're annoyed, like, for, like, they're fed, but for some reason, they're still crying. Like, you kind of say, oh, maybe they didn't get enough sleep, like you forgive a lot of it, because it's like, physiologically, there's something going on, we just don't know, because they can't communicate to us. Yep. And so you understand it we've got to do a better job of understanding that about ourselves and our employees too. That like, maybe they, like, maybe you just did not sleep enough. Like that could be as simple as that. Yeah. And that's why you are having all these negative thoughts about whether you're doing the right thing or not. And so I've, that realization over the past few years for me has been extremely freeing because I'm like, okay, I'm just hangry. Like I'm literally just hangry. And like yes. if I were to eat something, I'll be like much better. And, or my employee is acting up they're just not sleeping. Like it's just get more sleep, take your vacation or whatever it is. So uh, I think being a little more forgiving and we are ultimately still people just like the toddlers and understand that these physiological states uh, have a much more outsized impact on our mental states than, uh, than we give them credit to.
0: Well said, man. I mean, that was a, that was a lesson from my wife and I that kind of smacked us in the head as we literally noticed we were, my daughter came home, my oldest was just throwing like a fit about everything. And both of us were like, oh, like our immediate thought was like, did something happen at school that upset you? Did you not sleep well last night? We had all this compassion for it, right? Yet with each other, we were so quick to be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you snapping at me? Why are you? And we're like, we don't apply that same grace to each other. Like just because they're an adult, maybe my wife didn't sleep last night. Maybe she's hangry. Maybe something upset her earlier and it's just coming out now, right? And then we've noticed the same thing, just like you're talking about. The reason we've done so much energy management work is the same thing in work. I was doing a, a training the other day for a company, and this guy said, I think something's wrong with me. I think it has to do with sleep, but I'm getting eight hours of sleep. But he's like, I'm realizing after I was talking, he's like, I'm realizing I'm dead tired all the time. And I was like, well, quantity of sleep's not the only issue. The other is quality of sleep. And I was like, is there any chance that you have sleep apnea? And he didn't know what that was. He went and got tested. He was waking up over 400 times a night Wow! without knowing it, right? So he was basically never in REM sleep, which is like where you actually get rejuvenated and restored. And he was like, he's like 55 years old in blue collar work. And he said, I feel like I'm in my twenties. Like this is the first time I've ever woken up feeling like I'm ready for the day. My mind's turned on and everything just by realizing he was waking up 400 times a night. I'm like, dude. That's like best case scenario. Some simple fix like that. And all of a sudden you've got boundless energy again. And it just makes me curious. Like we should just be curious if we're not, if we're stressed out, if we're underperforming, if we are agitated all the time, why don't we just apply some curiosity to it and say like, let's ask some good questions of what might be going on because there might be a fix for it. You know what I'm saying? More likely than not, there is. I mean that
1: that's why the reading is so good. I know you're obviously a big reader as well. Like, have you come across the School of Life? Have you seen those? Uh, it's a YouTube channel, and they have uh, a bunch of books. No, never heard of it. This is the number the one number one life. recommendation I have to, to your to you to your listeners. Like, I'm such a huge fan of the School of Life. I like to joke that if I if I didn't have a YouTube channel at Osmosis, uh, they would be. Uh, they'd be my favorite so they're my second favorite youtube channel after our youtube channel they have 7 million subscribers or something and actually a bunch of books like the one right now i'm working on is this book great thinkers okay um, and like the, the thing i like about them so they have a ton of framework not frameworks but great writings about everything from your work uh happiness to relationships to um you know calm and anxiety your understanding yourself and um it's very much practical philosophy, like like Ryan Holiday's stuff in the Stoics, but yep. but beyond that, because Stoicism is a great framework and a great way to, to live. However, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily address all aspects of your life, like your relationship. Yes. Um and this this is probably the most high impact reading I've done because also because it's so simple. Like you oftentimes you'll want to read a book because it's like so big or complex, the more big words there are in it, or the longer it is, the more like you earned it. Um, But that's not, that's not their approach. It's like some of their most impactful books take like an hour or two hours to read very big fan of it. And like, I think it's been the best. I mean, I've read hundreds of books over the past four years and these are probably like in the top um, consistently in the top, top 10 or 15.
0: Okay. I'm definitely checking that out. And that was actually the second question I was going to get to after we got to your habits was, what would you say? And I know this is going to be frustrating because you have so many books you like, but it's just an exercise. What would be? Would you say off the top of your mind are the five books that have shaped you the most?
1: Yeah, I mean, so let's say I'd say within school life, the relation, like this book on relationships, that was really impactful. Thinking about uh, how, what, not just romantic relationships, but why do we love people? And uh, the big takeaway from that was we love people because they have qualities in them. That we aspire to emulate. Um, mm. So think about the, your best friends, your your life partners, whatever it may be. Um, oftentimes it boils down to the fact that being around them makes you a better person. That's why you fall yeah. in love. Um, other ones uh, that are impactful, just again, I haven't looked at my list, but I would say the things that come out, the autobiography of Mah- Mahatma Gandhi um, made me eat, like I basically gave up meat for a long time. I'm doing fish now just because protein sources, but maybe I'll give that up again. Um let's see another one is obviously James Clear Atomic Habits I think he's a wonderful writer it's cool that you had him on your podcast as well. He's awesome. Um, yeah. And and really impactful. I love people who like make massive improvements to general the general public because they make them better. I love that stuff. Um within entrepreneurship The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz and Ben Horowitz is a huge fan of Andy Grove who was the chairman and CEO of Intel for many years. And so after reading The Hard Thing About Hard Things, I started reading Andy Grove, Only the Paranoid Survive, and a few other books from Andy Grove. Really good stuff for entrepreneurs, like very high impact. I would say like a fifth is probably things around understanding society. Um, So everyone, you all know Harari, wrote the book Sapiens, which people love. But I actually, his book Homo Deus and 21 Laws for the 21st Century, I think are even more impactful, at least to me they were um really cool books thinking like making you think about your place in society
0: um and so i'd say those are the five that come to mind right away super cool you named several that i've not read especially hard things about hard things that's just an awesome title <laughs> yeah like
1: like that. you. that's a awesome book for all entrepreneurs like it's really straight talk ben horowitz
0: the founder co-founder of Andreessen horowitz the venture venture capital firm yeah Yeah, I'm a fan of titles, man, especially like, that's why I like a lot of Ryan Holiday's books, like his book, The Obstacle is the Way, like, just the title, just the title I'm going to remember, you know, I'm like, all I need, the main takeaway is The Obstacle is the Way, stop avoiding the obstacle, you know, like, (laughs) that is the path for you. My best friend's
1: flying into Chicago right now, um, and he got me a signed copy of The Obstacle is the Way from Ryan Holiday, Uh, and I have a Memento Mori coin. Um, I should hopefully Ryan Holiday does listen to this podcast, but I should apologize to Ryan Holiday. Obviously, he's one of my favorite authors, so I really, yes. really like it. You get a Daily Stoic newsletter or too, or
0: yes, yes. Yeah. I got. I follow him on Instagram, and I get the newsletter. Uh, man, he 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 did a a lot of a re, huge mindset shifts for me. I had I had struggled with kind of anxiety for a lot of my life, and there's been a lot of influences that have helped me start to better better manage and 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 deal with that. But one of them was just a simple quote he shared. I think it was from Seneca, where he said, "I've suffered much in my life, most of it from, from my own imagination." And I was like, "Holy hell! I think most of my suffering is self-induced." You know, it is it is an uncontrolled mind that is spinning on things I can't control or on uh, imagining worst case scenarios. And I just remember seeing that quote from him, going, "I think this is a key for me." You know what I mean? And he just got so much great, like you said, ancient, kind of ancient wisdom that still applies today. And then the rest was taken through our advances in neuroscience and understanding the connection between thoughts and emotions and and, and all those kinds of things really helped me a lot. That's, I mean, it's really cool that you mentioned like that one quote as like being very impactful to you
1: because that's why, that's why I read so much is like, you know, it's impossible to learn, like remember everything you read right? Uh, Especially if you're reading things at two to three X and you're reading a book or two a week and like people ask me like, is that better? Or should you just read like 10 books a year and like read them deep and dissect them? And I'm sure, I don't know which one's better or not, but for me, it's finding the right message at the right time. Um, And then that message will oftentimes, you know, if I've read Da Vinci, the Da Vinci biography by Isaacson and learn about how Da Vinci did things, but then I read Ray Dalio's principles, the two um, having knowledge of the two spread over hundreds of years, one's a artist, um, genius, uh, engineer, the other is a hedge fund manager, also genius. But if they have the same principles across hundreds of years and different careers and different lives, like those those may be universal principles. Similarly Seneca and Jefferson or Ben Franklin. And so that's why I read so much is like you find the right quote that like hits you at the right time. And there are a lot of times you read something where like it's a great message. Like I've given atomic habits to a bunch of my friends some of them will immediately like their life will improve because they're ready to hear it. A lot of other ones, like it's still kind of, it's more of a paperweight and they haven't even picked it up or they've read it, but like they weren't ready to hear it or do it. Yes. So,
0: Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of- no, I'm the same way, man. I put myself in front of a lot of stuff like that because I want, and I don't, I used to feel the burden to try to uh, understand and apply it all. And that's when I realized that wasn't what I was going for. I was going to introduce myself to things that I would have the opportunity to have just one thing stick out you know like similar a similar book for me have you ever read the one thing by gary keller yeah yeah yeah. so that hit me at the right time i mean that was like a perfect a perfect time for me to understand the 80 20 rule the pareto principle to really start to buy into the belief that one thing at any given time is more important than everything else in terms of Problems you could solve in a business or even attention because I have three kids, I have a wife, I had a business, I had a podcast, I was writing a book. All of them have demands, right? And then when I read the one thing, I was like, Yeah, but in each of those areas, there's only really one thing that would make my wife happier than anything else I could do for her. And there's only one thing that my business needs for me right now that if I get that accomplished, will make everything else easier. And but I've given that book to other people that that wasn't what they needed to read at the time. I was like, Yeah, nice ideas. <laughs> and then just moved totally. on, right? Totally. Uh, man, this has been so fun. All right, you and I could geek out forever on on this kind of stuff. Uh, so hopefully there's a friendship forming here because I want to keep talking to you about stuff you're learning. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, let's get to our lightning round questions, and then I'll let you get back to your day uh, there in Chicago. So question number one for you, my friend, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? I already do this actually. So everyone who joins Osmosis goes to our relationship building
1: workshop that we've recorded and sends some takeaways. So it's to build genuine and strong relationships because ultimately I think that's what brings the most happiness and that's what matters most. Heck yeah.
0: I love that. I want to find out how you guys are doing that later. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Definitely uh hire slowly, fire quickly is the best advice. That's that's so
1: so common and like we've made some during COVID we made some really terrible hires because we were trying to grow really quickly and seize them opportunity and health education and they just like the one bad seed or two bad seeds for your culture they aren't bad people just for your culture they're they're yeah. bad can really sow a lot of toxicity within the company so that's something I have learned firsthand the worst is, a piece of advice is just like I think we get wrapped up I mean these are even in 5000 like we get wrapped up in like fundraising rounds and awards and recognitions and so we we have great investors. However, I will say that raising money when we were profitable, um, I, I don't have a counterfactual, but raising money will make you profligate and uh, can make you profligate. So, because you aren't thinking within constraints when you're bootstrapped. And yep. so, I'm still my first company, I have an NF1, but I'm still, I think the bad advice is raise money because it's, you know, you should raise money because you, Easier, you can scale competitor. faster. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think people tend to raise too much money. And then like as an entrepreneur, you could go to zero if
0: you do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, I, I, by the way, you've introduced me to that phrase. I don't think I've heard very often, but I don't have a counterfactual. I I like that. You know, I have nothing really to base this against. I don't have the, the facts of knowing if what it would have been differently if I hadn't done it this way, but you are right. You know, something I even learned in the creative process that I found interesting was Quentin Tarantino was talking about the big fallacy for artists is that they need no limitations. That if they had a truly blank canvas with no restrictions they'd be more creative and he said the opposite is true he's like you have analysis paralysis if you and he yeah. said some of the, he said some of the worst movies had the biggest budgets because you yes. get sloppy you're like well we can just cgi everything and we can and he's like he, he so i think he even started a film contest where you brought in all these writers and you gave them insane constraints so they had to tell a story. That only involved a single room in a hotel with one table, two chairs, and two people. And that was it. Like, tell me a story that involves one room, one table, two chairs, two people. And it was like people's creativity came alive because they had constraints because they had to work within a framework and think about it differently. And what if those two people were like this? Right. And I think sometimes in businesses that way, like you, you you get scrappier, you get more innovative, when you're when you've got to find a way around that issue without unlimited budget at it. Does that make sense? Totally. That thanks for introducing me to that. I'll definitely have to look that look that up and, and share it. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's uh, the counterfactual is it's like it's going to be held in tension that there's going to be times you got to raise money, you know, for speed or to to innovate or to whatever, but I think it should be held in tension with you don't always need it and you might want to think through your assumptions on what you need. Um, all right, question number 4. What is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? So, for the company, it's uh,
1: by 2025, we want to have educated a billion people. So, to date, we've done, we've probably reached about 50 million unique people, 2 million YouTube subscribers, and a ton of other people who've consumed our content on our platform, on YouTube without subscribing. But we want to have educated about a 10% of the world by
0: 2025 in health literacy or how to provide care. Wow, love it. All right. Question number five. This is our fun, creative question. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to your past and you get to tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when would you go back and what would you tell that younger version of yourself? I love that question. Um, I would actually go back as far as
1: I could go. Probably, Well, I'd probably go back to like maybe seventh or eighth grade and say, so I was very studious and obviously, and like, I'm glad I was, but at the same time, um there's a lot of stuff that school teaches you that is useless and uh and it'd be behoove you to take less time on those useless things and more time on the things that are really useful and so to be honest it's advice i've already given you which is read the school of life so my hope is back then i could get copies of the school of life and especially the book what they forgot to teach you in school which is a great book for Mm. your children potentially too yeah and like really just incorporate some of those lessons
0: heck yeah well, man, this has been so fun. Shiv. Thank you for geeking out with me on, uh, ev- we've talked about everything under the sun. And so I know it's been valuable for us, uh, for the audience as well. And, uh, man, just thank you so much for being here today. Dude, thanks for having me.
1: I really enjoyed this conversation. I've done a lot of podcasts and, and this was among my favorites. So thanks so much. And, uh, uh, people can reach me if they want shiv at I love connecting with folks. So, and where, what about the YouTube channel? Uh, just youtube.com forward slash osmosis or just look up osmosis med perfect all right guys go check it out founders thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed it make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results